Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is the birth of Moses. Grab yourself a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. I'm Pastor Amanda Zanzalo, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, let's start with that story of Moses. People probably know the name, and if you're familiar with the yearly Easter time broadcast of the Ten Commandments, <laughs> you may have heard this story. But as a recap, go back and start from the beginning. What are we going to hear in church from the lectionary this Sunday? The story comes to us from the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 1, and it's 1-8 through 2-10. So Genesis is the book that kind of tells the start, the beginning of this special relationship with God that the Israelite people have. So that's Genesis, where it generates out of. Exodus is when they take on this leave. They take on a journey. And so in the first book, you get creation stories and you get, you know, stories about different people. You get Abraham and his journey. And then it ends with Joseph with the many colored coat okay. ending up in Egypt and being an important person in Egypt. Exodus begins in a time in which the Pharaoh that Joseph has served has died and Several generations have passed, and the Israelite people who had come to Egypt to be with Joseph during that famine that he saved them from, right? They all come to Egypt. That's the end of that story. There's a reunion. And this new king in the beginning of Genesis, the new Pharaoh, doesn't know who Joseph is. Doesn't know the story of how, you know, there's not a I'm connection I'm going to guess there. he doesn't care either. Probably not. And instead, he looks out and he sees this group of people who are smart and numerous. There's lots of them. And he starts to get nervous. Mm. And he says in verse 10, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape our land. And so begins the systemic oppression of the Israelite people. At this point, then, they become indentured servants to the Pharaoh. They start to do physical manual labor. They very intentionally oppressed them. Okay. Okay. So that's the relationship where we are for the people of Israel. So then we get to verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Okay. So his plan didn't work. Totally didn't work. <laughs> Backfired. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And so they become more and more ruthless to the point that finally the king of Egypt says to, and this is part of what gets missed, right? Because we hear this story of Moses and we hear like, okay, so the people of Israel were oppressed and this horrible thing happens where the king demands that all the baby boys are killed. And so... They put Moses in a basket. He goes down the river and the Pharaoh's daughter swoops him up and he's fine. Like that's the extent of the story that we normally hear, right? And that Moses then grows up as a part of the Pharaoh's household. That's the story we hear, but it's missing some really important key pieces when we shrink it down 
just that much. Okay. Is that the version that you hear in church or do you hear the full thing? This coming weekend, we'll hear the full thing, but it's a long reading. It's a reading we have to choose to read. Okay. It's a semi-continuous part of the lectionary, and so we have another choice to read from Isaiah instead of out of here, and it only comes up as an option every three years. So it's not common that we hear the actual birth narrative of Moses in our church on Sundays, and it would be even less common for us to preach on it. Okay. Because Lutherans so often stick to just preaching the gospel. Okay. So what is the missing part? What part are you choosing to focus on this time around? Well, I have yet to decide if I'm going to preach on it. But the part that, of course, goes missing is any agency of the women. Well, that's (laughs) par for the course for most of this, right? Right. So what we lose is this really fascinating section. It starts in verse 15. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, right, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. So we get two you get names? named women. Wow. Two named women in this story. And they're midwives. Wow. That right? really never happens. Totally. So the king of Egypt calls in these two Hebrew midwives who are named in verse 15. And he says, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? Here comes a fantastic cut. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Oh, nice. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's just this incredible example of feminine uprising, right? When we think about the ways in which we try to silence the voice of women in our scripture or the way in which the patriarchal culture has kind of taken away a lot of agency of women in scripture— Here we have these two amazing named midwives who are absolutely flaunting the rule of the king in the region in order to save these children. And well, and I love that their answer is something that he can't really dispute. Right. He can't fight back against it. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's not showing up. No, he's not there. He's not going to be present when the birthing happens. No, he's not. And he wouldn't deign to be around the Hebrew women anyway. Exactly. And so it's this wonderful way in which these midwives claimed their agency, claimed their capacity, held on to their faith, held on to their structure and their core belief, and fought against the oppression of their people. The verse goes on to say that God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, held in good relationship with God, God gave them families. So within this story of the origin of Moses is this incredibly strong story of feminine agency and reclamation of life by the midwives of the community. It's pretty cool. It's amazing. Totally overlooked. You (laughs) never, ever hear that. Certainly did not get portrayed in the Ten Commandments either. 
No, and not in a Sunday school class, right? Probably because we don't want to talk about what a birthing chair is, but, you know, <laughs> for whatever reasons, we don't cover that in Sunday school. <laughs> a little too earthy. A little too earthy, right? So the story then continues because, of course, when someone in power is being stopped or kept from getting done what they want to do, they find another way around. Oh, sure. Right? It's going to escalate somehow. It's going to escalate. And so then Pharaoh commanded all of the people, not just the midwives, Pharaoh commanded all of the people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you will throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. And so that's where we get this image of the children being killed. And a lot of times we kind of just pick up the story there. We start there with our story of Moses and we skip that whole first part. Sure. Where the midwives held their insurrection, so to speak. Yeah, I don't remember the midwives at all. Yeah. So Pharaoh commands the children are thrown into the Nile. And the next section that we have is we have this couple who fall in love. They have a child. They have a son. And she saw that it was a, that he was a fine baby and she hides him for three months when she can no longer hide the child, right? When they start to get a little more squirmy, a little more active. Yeah. Three months is when the newborn cry ends and they get loud. I'm sure. <laughs> and so at that point, she takes him and she does what we've heard of in the movies, right? She takes a papyrus basket she plasters it up with bitumen and pitch. She puts the child in it. She places the basket into the reeds on the side of the river. Now, if you're going to follow the letter of the law, instead of the spirit <laughs> of the law, <laughs> she did technically put the kid in the Nile. Absolutely accurate. You're totally true. Mm -hmm. She did put the child. She just happened to put him in a basket. Mm -hmm. Well, and maybe she just tossed him in the basket and then it just <laughs> happened to float away. <laughs> It was a very well-made basket, that's all. It's a very nicely made basket. So at this point, the other pieces, they get lost, right? We hear the story then that the basket floats down the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter picks up the basket, and Moses is saved. So of course, there's a whole section in here that again is kind of overlooked. And guess who the main characters are? Women. You got it. Mm, nice. So Moses's sister, this is chapter two, verse four, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Wait, Moses has an older sister who watched his mom put him in the basket. Yes. Okay. He has a sister who watches his mother place him in the basket. He ends up having a brother as well, but his sister is the one that is super fascinating and that I have loved her for a very long time. Her name, do you know Moses' sister's name? Oh, I should, but I don't. Miriam. Oh, another Mary, technically, right? Another Mary, yep. So this is Miriam. This is uh, an amazing woman in the Hebrew scriptures. And Miriam watches Moses be placed into the basket, and she watches over the basket as it goes down the river. Now, remember, it's legal for there to be Hebrew female children who live. Sure. Right. So Miriam is safe. She doesn't have to fear for her life. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure she has to fear. Why would for you For other reasons, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she has reason to pay attention, and she watches over Moses. So then the daughter of Pharaoh has come down to the river to bathe, and her attendants were with her. 
and she sees the basket among the reeds and she tells her mates to bring it to her. So she opens up the basket. She sees the child. She takes pity on him because he cries. And she said, this must be one of the Hebrews children. Here's the next verse that oftentimes again gets overlooked. Pharaoh's daughter doesn't just say, hey, this is great. I'm going to take care of this baby. Miriam steps in and Miriam says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I just happen to know someone who could probably nurse this three-month-old infant for you. And the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Well, sure. I mean, it makes sense, but it's kind of blowing my mind that the Pharaoh's daughter would want to help this child for one. Right. And that the sister would have had the wherewithal. I'd have been freaking out if I saw somebody in power like that. I mean, what are you going to do? I'd be watching horrified going, well, obviously she's going to harm the child. Obviously she's going to kill my brother. Yeah. But instead she had this instinct to feel bad for the child. And Miriam had the wherewithal about her to say, you know what? Maybe I could help you with getting the child taken care of. And so Pharaoh's daughter takes Miriam up on this. And Miriam goes, fetches their mom, comes back, and Pharaoh takes the child, hands it back to his mother and says, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, I would be freaking out at the mother at this point because there is no way my poker face is good enough to not (laughs) blow the whole thing wide open. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating, right? These women are completely conspiring to keep this child alive. Uh And the child is going right back into his birth family. The next line is, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So the parts of the story that we completely ignore, I mean, even the Prince of Egypt movie, which is a decent movie animated Mm -hmm. wise, and it's got a great score. The music is fantastic. But what we romanticize and lose is not just that this mother places the child in the river and the baby floats down the river and whatever. We miss the midwives saving lives. We miss Moses's mother setting him just in the reeds on the side of the water where his sister can watch over. We miss the courage of Miriam calling out to Pharaoh's daughter saying, I'll get you a midwife and bringing her brother home. We miss that Moses grew up in his infant and childhood years as a child of the Hebrew people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just completely assumed that Pharaoh's daughter took him from there on out. Totally. And they all lived with her. Right? In the palace. Mm -hmm. But no, he didn't show up there until he had grown up. Now we have a child who learned the stories of his people, likely who he was and whose he was as an infant and young boy, and then went and lived among Pharaoh's people. So that when we fast forward and we come to Moses as a young adult and he stops the guard from harming the Hebrew people and he kills the guard and is then exiled, 
we have some inkling why this child who lived between these two different worlds would have made that choice. And it opens up layers for Christian ears, because I would guess that Jewish folks kind of pay more attention to this part of the story than we do. Okay. (laughs) But for our ears, it opens up this opportunity for understanding Moses as a much more rounded figure to understand he spent his childhood in the arms of his mother. I'm now thinking back to what I remember seeing in the movie, which Mm -hmm. is a terrible basis of comparison, I realize. But the fascinating part being how they let him do that, right? Why would the Pharaoh let this continue knowing? Did the Pharaoh even know, right? The Pharaoh may not have even known. Well, that's fair. As I'm saying that out loud, I'm Mm -hmm. also thinking if I was the Pharaoh's daughter, I wouldn't say squat to anybody, right? If this was a child that I was going to adopt as my own child, maybe this is another way of the Pharaoh's daughter claiming her own agency. Sure. Right? It's all women conspiring behind the scenes in this section. It's women who are claiming agency against the powers that are saying what the rules and structure are, and they're finding ways around it. And it's a fascinating kind of study to wonder what kind of implications does that have culturally and what kind of implications does that have spiritually and what kind of implications does that have on who Moses is and how he grew up and who he became as an adult? And why would God call him to be the one who would lead God's people out of exile? Why did God choose this child to be the one to teach us how to be in community with one another? It's what the Ten Commandments are, right, is how to be in community together. And Moses is far from a perfect person. There's so much about him that is challenging and hard, and he's, he has a hard life, and he doesn't make it to the promised land, and all kinds of pieces. But here at the beginning of his story is all of these ways that people reclaim their own agency through the power of a God who loves them. Where did it first come to you that this was all missing? Was it the first time that you read this story or was it pointed out to you somehow, some way? I think a couple of years ago, a while back, I had done some of the Bible stories we think we know kind of a class. And we think we know them because we get them in our Sunday school classes or there are popular films about them. And I am just as guilty as anyone about having learned some of my scripture stories through film. Oh, yeah. And through popular retelling of them, which always brings them down rather than, you know, I might have read this in seminary as part of the assignment to read the Pentateuch. But whether or not I retained the details, the Bible always has more in it than we can ever hold in any one reading. Right. Sure. So this is one of those stories that these hidden pieces are present, hidden to our eyes until we start to watch for it. And I don't think when I was first reading it either that I was much of a feminist or even much of a a woman who paid attention to the fact that, like, these women have names. Uh (laughs) Right? I didn't know at the time that that was a big deal. And so the opportunity to pay attention to that. There's also things we don't notice in, like, Noah's Ark story and how long we think that actually took and all kinds of things. There's these little pieces where we take the stories and we shorten them down to a 25-minute Sunday school lesson 
and we take the bits and pieces out that are going to be problematic. And then we never hear the stories again as adults in such a way that we get a bigger picture of it. Man, if that isn't a metaphor for most things that happen, we (laughs) take out the problematic bits and we distill it down and we just tell the (laughs) core essence of the story that we like over and over again. Right. And we stay with what we've learned as kids. And it's not that people are dumb and it's not that people are wrong teaching a simplified version of this to kids in Sunday school. Right. The heartbeat of the story is that Moses was saved, that Moses should have died and Moses lived and that he had a connection to Pharaoh's family that allowed him a way to have the conversation with Pharaoh when he was an adult. Right. He knew how to get into the palace as an adult so he could go and say, let my people go. He knew how to interact in that environment because he was Pharaoh's daughter's kid, right? He was Pharaoh's grandchild. And so how that access happened is what we basically want to get at the core of when we're teaching them in Sunday school. But these other details, these other pieces of people choosing God's law over human law or family advocating and holding precious the life of one another, right? Those pieces of this story, they disappear. That's fascinating. Okay, that's going to lead me to my last question. You have sort of answered part of it in that this is not something that you typically preach on. When you use it now for something like vacation Bible school or some sort of Sunday school, do you focus on that aspect of it, the women, or do you go back to the typical story that everybody hears? When I've had any chances, it's always been in a curriculum that's been pre-prepared, and so it's not in there. I know, right? So it would be really interesting to see what could be created, maybe for confirmation age. I think our confirmands would probably get a kick out of this part of it. I think so. Yeah. There's opportunity to learn there. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Pastor Manor, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about baby Moses. I look forward to sitting down with you on another week on another topic. As do I. And thank you all for joining us. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts, or another perspective you would like to share, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at podcast at centralportland.org, find us on Facebook, or email us directly. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you, no matter what.